Want a fresh take on what's going on with the Saints, LSU, the betting world, and the NFL? Then you've picked the right place. Jim Derry has plenty of datitude, and he's ready to tell you the way it is. Well, the way he thinks it is. Where you at, New Orleans? And hello to all my friends around the country who are already sick and tired of dripping sweat every damn day. Hello, everybody. I am Jim Derry, sports betting writer at the Advocate of the Times Picune and bet.nola.com. And this is Datitude, episode number 76 for a Friday. June 10th, 2022, and if there's anything else I talk about more than sports on this show, other than my family sometimes, which we'll get into, there's a family event coming up this weekend, I'm going to get personal in a second, but it's the weather. In case you haven't listened to this show for more than five or six episodes, and you can't tell, I hate summer. For a multitude of reasons, I hate the summer. I mean, look, we have some big sports weekends, like the one that's coming up this weekend. We have some different events going on. I know everyone looks forward to the start of football season, and their calendars revolve around what's going on with football. And we're going to talk a lot of football today as the Saints head towards minicamp next week. Jeff Duncan's going to be on in just a moment. I know that a lot of you like to listen when when Dunk comes on, and he'll have plenty of things to talk about as we talk about um, about half saints. Talk about LIV golf. I'm not calling it live. We're going to get into that in just a minute. The Belmont Stakes this weekend. The NBA Finals are continuing. We're going to wrap up LSU baseball with Jeff Duncan in a little bit. But I hate summer. I don't, but other than if you're a teacher, okay? If you're a teacher, I get it. You're, you got your 10 weeks off. I don't, don't get me started. Don't get me started on that. I love you teachers, but don't get me started. But the weather in southern Louisiana. Yeah, I, I, I have friends that, you live in southern Louisiana. You know it's coming. You complain about it. Well, you know what? I might know that it's time for my... 40-year-old, 50-year-old doctor's appointment. That doesn't mean I'm not going to complain about it. We like to complain sometimes. Get it off of our chest. And I hate summer. Okay? It won't be the last time I say it over the next couple months either. I hate 90 degrees. I'm not moving somewhere else. I don't want to deal with it. I don't care. Even the kids sometimes, I, I think they're glad they're out of school. But they're already complaining. It is what it is. Maybe it was because I was born at the end of summer and my mother couldn't wait to get me out. I don't know. I have no idea. But I just, I don't like the beach. I go because my wife and kids want to go at least once a year I go. Uh, Sometimes twice a year, friends want to go. I've never been a fan of sand. Um, When I play golf, I do every single thing I can to avoid a bunker. I'd rather go... If there's a bunker in front of a, a green, I'm probably not going to hit the green. Because I'm going to, I'd rather go to the left of the green than go anywhere near the sand. I'm a terrible sand player because I hate the sand. Um, 
I'm okay with the pool. Swimming's fine. But usually in the summer, the water's like 92 degrees, and it's like taking a bath anyway. I just hate the summer. Now, how's that for a three-minute rant to get this show started? Yeah, I know. You don't want to hear about that. Too bad. That's what the fast-forward button's on the podcast. That's a good thing about podcasts. You just slip your little finger on there. Fast-forward 30 seconds. Oh, he's still talking about the weather. Fast-forward 30 Oh, he's still talking. Jesus! Still talking about the weather. Yep, that's right. All right, moving on. I got a couple more rants before we get into Jeff Duncan. And uh, it does start with LIV golf. which It's really 54 golf is what you want to call it. Because they're calling it 54 golf because that's how many holes they're going to play. But for those of you who are not familiar with this, okay, and, and don't care about golf or whatever, it's, it's a big story because 17 golfers now have been, have taken the leap and left the PGA, basically, to go play in the Saudi Arabian league or whatever they want to call it. And the money is out the wazoo. Some PGA golfers, without saying it, are calling the people that left sellouts. Some of the big names have left. Phil Mickelson. Um, I probably haven't made my thoughts on Phil Mickelson known what I've thought about him throughout the past 20 years. My friends know what I think of him. So it's no surprise that he kind of started this exodus. Um, yeah, I'm not going to go into that today. But Dustin Johnson... Bryson DeChambeau are some of the big names that have left. Kevin Na. And what they've done now is they have forfeited their right, basically, at least for the near future, to ever come back to the PGA. I, that's kind of an oxymoron, I guess. I guess it's possible they could come back if they make amends with the PGA. But the PGA is taking um, serious issue with those who are leaving and making millions and millions and millions of dollars. There's reportedly, some of these golfers are making more just to leave than they would make maybe in their entire careers with the PGA. And I mean, we're talking big names here. So if money means everything to you, and we'll get to a little little. Spoiler alert, that's how we're going to end this show today. Money changes everything, right? And if that's what you're about, then, then go. And I'm always, I've always been one that was, hey, it's free choice. If you want to leave, leave. It doesn't mean I'm not going to look at you like you're a dill hole. Because you're going to regret it one day. Well, maybe you won't. Maybe you don't care about your, your golf career. Because that ain't going to last. I liken, I liken this new golf league to the USFL of the mid-80s. Paying guys big names, hundreds of millions of dollars. The only difference was that these guys didn't get exiled from the NFL. When the USFL folded after three years of existence, they all went into the NFL. When this new golf league folds... I don't know what the heck you're going to do, buddy. I really don't. Because you ain't playing in the PGA, at least not anytime soon. Now, 
guys like Bryson DeChambeau who a bit had trouble making cuts lately. And the only reason, I mean, he's won, he's won some tournaments, and don't get me wrong, he has plenty of talent. But the reason why he's a big name is because he's bulked up uh, and become a muscle head and can hit the ball 972 yards. Good for you. You can go be a show in LIV golf. Phil Mickelson, he's, you know, you, you won the PGA Championship in 2021. Good for you, but basically you're done. You're a 51-year-old has-been. But guys like Dustin Johnson, I don't understand. I mean, again, free to make your own choices, but at what cost? The money, you're going to make more money going over there. But then when that league folds, and that's without mentioning the fact of who's running this league. You know, I don't agree with Jamel Hill very often. In fact, rarely if ever. But she had a decent point when she put on Twitter. You know, people want to complain about the NBA and their dealings with China. But there hasn't been a lot made of golfers going to play in Saudi Arabia. Something to be said there. Again, this isn't a politics show. But what's going to happen when that league's done and you're done? It's going to be interesting to see how that all works out. But uh, money changes everything. And um, we're going to see it. I think the Lord's agreeing with me up there as we hear some thunder popping through on a Friday morning. The NBA Finals Game 4, Golden State and Boston. I was... I'm not ready to say I was wrong, Zach Ewing, but, um, man, the Celtics have taken it to Golden State physically. Is it going to continue in game four? Are they going to let them play differently? Are they going to let them play like they played in game two and let Draymond get away with, I don't want to say with murder, but get away with being pretty darn physical? Or are they going to be like game three and they're going to call every flipping thing they say? Consistency. There's no consistency in the NBA. It really is frustrating. And I wish they would talk about having, like, do what baseball does. You get the same umpiring crew throughout a playoff series to be as consistent as possible. They don't do that in the NBA. I think they should. And if it's an officiating crew you don't like, tough. At least we know it's going to get called as close to the same and be as transparent as possible. Because... There are too many series, I think, that get called certain ways so they get extended. Obviously, the longer there are, the more games they play, the more revenue it is for the networks and for the league. Is that talked about before a game starts? I don't know. Would it surprise me if it was? Not in the slightest. There's no consistency in NBA officiating. There really isn't. And in more than any other sport, it's so easy to manipulate. It's easier to manipulate a game by officials in basketball than any other sport by far. We can talk about the no call you want and, and the tuck rule and all these different things and the way they used to call what was a catch, what wasn't a catch in football all you want. You can talk about the interpretation of a strike zone in baseball all you want. Um... I'm sure there are plenty of ways things are called in hockey that are, that are different. But in no other sport can you manipulate a series 
in my opinion, than in the sport of basketball. And we see it. We've seen it already through these three games of the NBA Finals. All three games have been called differently. Very differently, as a matter of fact. Especially from game two to game three. Very differently. Manipulation? I don't know. I'm not ready to go that far. But it's certainly different. And there needs to be consistency in basketball. I don't know that we'll ever see it. Unless they do what we're talking about. And the same crew officiates an entire series. There's no reason not to. There's zero reason not to do that. Someone tell me why. Be glad to hear it. Jay Derry at theadvocate.com. I'd be glad to hear your reasoning. We're going to move on, though, because I do want to spend uh, some time. We're going to talk about the Saints. Um, now, the first half of my interview with Dunk is <clears throat> about some of the things we that aren't related to the Saints, because I want to talk about the Belmont, too. No one knows more about the sport of horse racing, at least in the media, in Louisiana, than Jeff Duncan. And so if you're interested in placing a little wager this weekend, he's got some thoughts on the race. We touch on this LIV golf and get Dunk's take on it. We talk about LSU baseball. We wrap up their season. We talk about the NBA Finals. And then we get into the Saints. All things that are important this time of year. As we move, we're only, it's hard to believe. <clears throat> we're only six weeks away from training camp. That's how close we are. It, it is, the calendar is moving, so it's almost time for vacation. And before I get to Dunkel, we'll have a program and note for you. Next week, we'll have two shows. Uh, on Wednesday, we'll be talking about, uh, we'll advance the U.S. Open and our thoughts on that. Um, I haven't confirmed it with it, but I'm assuming Uncle Big Nick is going to come on the show. Um, if I can afford him now. I mean, he's, he's getting to be well-known and a star. I'm not gonna be able, we're not going to be able to afford him on Datitude much longer. So he'll come on uh, and help us preview the U.S. Open next week, a special Wednesday edition. And then Friday, next Friday, I believe that Jeff Duncan is going to come back on and we're going to talk about the Saints minicamp and what we've seen thus far. And then it's a hiatus. We're going to go on vacation for a couple weeks. Unless something major happens, and if it does, we'll have a show while we're on the road. Uh, but we'll see. Right now, the plan is to go on vacation for two weeks after next Friday. Looking forward to that. Let's get into Mr. Duncan and his thoughts on what's going on in the sports world right now, and more specifically, this weekend with some big events coming up. Welcoming into the Datitude podcast on this second Friday in June, hard to believe that's how far we've come in this year already. Jeff Duncan, our own columnist, Times Picayune, the advocate. And Dunk, what's going on this morning? JD, it's kind of a kind of an ugly day here, and yeah. uh, I'm preparing for the Belmont tomorrow. I'm excited about the third leg of the Triple Crown. I know it hadn't been a very dynamic Triple Crown series, but um, it's always fun to watch those big events. Yeah, you know it's it. It's it's an exciting sports weekend, really. If you're just a sports yeah. enthusiast, there's there's a lot going on this weekend, and and we're going to touch on on a little bit of it. Um, there are a few things. I mean, obviously, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the Saints this morning, but there are some things that I do want to talk about that that don't uh, relate to the Saints, and uh, one of them is going to be the Belmont. But I want to start off with my rant of the morning, and it's LIV golf and. Um, I'd like to get your take on this and see if I'm just maybe maybe going overboard a little bit. But, uh, you know, I'm always 
look, I'm all for free choice and you make your choices in life and professionally and whatever. We've all made our choices professionally and sometimes they're good choices. Sometimes they're not our choices, sometimes whatever. Uh, but um, this, this money grab of this LIV golf, I think these golfers are going to end up regretting this, although they're probably going to make more money from this than maybe they'll make over the course of the rest of their PGA careers or would make. But uh, I'd just like to get your take on what you think about uh, what this could potentially do to the sport of golf. Yeah, look, it's a big story, and it's definitely had a dramatic impact right away, right? I mean, we're going to see this weekend how many players – uh, well, seven, what, 17 now? Already 17. By the PJ. That's right. And a lot of those guys are players that play in the Zurich Classic. So I've got my eye on that because uh, these are key guys uh, that come here every spring and really embolden our field here, make our field so strong. Uh, but I'm kind of torn on it, to be honest with you. I, 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 I'm kind of like you. Like, I understand it's a total money grab. Let's Right? I mean, I, I think this happened – in soccer a few years back where China uh, made a big run at a bunch of premier league players and paid them silly money. And, uh, you know, I, it, but it was a brief run. And I, that's what I'm kind of interested to see. Does this thing have, have legs? Is it going to actually have staying power? Or is this just some kind of like USFL kind of thing with Donald Trump and, and they're going to, you know, get a few stars to go over and then it's going to dissolve and it's going to go back to the way it was. That's what I don't have a feel for right now. Is this something that's actually going to be a long-term competitor to the PGA Tour? Uh, I don't know. I know those are deep pockets over in the Middle East, uh, and they're, they seem to be willing to spend whatever it takes to make this thing work. And so I guess that is scary for the PGA Tour, and they've reacted accordingly because they sense this is a, a serious uh, threat uh, to the PGA Tour. You know, it's funny you, you say USFL and mention USFL because you and I did not talk about this. We talked about what we were going to talk about, but we did not talk about this topic, and that's exactly what I related to, the USFL. Uh, not mm-hmm. this USFL, the one that was back in the 80s and the one that Donald Trump helped put together and, and this big money grab thing that it kind of worked. Um, what would happen to it in, in the long term? I don't know that anyone really knows before the NFL got involved and squashed them like a bug. I don't know that the PGA has the, uh, the strong arm to do what the NFL did to the USFL back in the eighties. But I do know this, if this thing flops on its face, I'm not sure what these golfers are going to do because maybe they'll eventually allowed back, be allowed back, but um, not anytime soon. And when you, when you tick off the big boy, and I know what, what people's feelings about are about the big boy, but, uh, you know, I'm just not sure that if career-wise, if you love the sport of golf, if it's something that's sustainable. Yeah, and then there's, the, you know, there's a little morality question, right? I mean, that's what really is going on here. A lot of the PGA tours made this more about morals and ethics, considering where the money's coming from, the Saudis, you know, their history of, you know, human atrocities and, and, and so they played it and positioned this as a battle about morals and ethics. And I think the Saudi, the live tour, of course, is just saying, hey, look, this is just a business. And we're, we're playing at a business now. Obviously, the players that have elected to jump ship, they, of course, are selling it that way as well. So uh, who wins that battle in, in the terms of the court of public opinion? I think uh, right now it feels like it's 50-50. 
Before we move on, I'm just going to say this. Tiger Woods is in the PGA. Phil Mickelson is in the LIV. I'm not calling it live. That just says, this is dumb. Tiger Woods <laughs> versus Phil Mickelson. I know who I'm betting on. That's all I'm just saying. If, if we're going to look yeah, at yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's a really good observation in that, you know, we know Phil Mickelson's troubles, right? I mean, they're well documented. Yep. So I think they're going to end up getting some players like that more, more so than the, uh, you, you know, they got Sam Burns's of the world, Justin Thomas's that are pretty set and established right now. Uh, they have no reason to jump ship, you know. Uh, DJ's the one that shocks me. Yeah. Justin so I, look, I, I think I, I think it says a lot about who who jumps and who doesn't. But uh, it is fascinating, and it really has kind of come out of nowhere in the last six months or so. I didn't see this coming, and um, uh, it you know certain, certainly some people are going to get. Very rich on this, but at what cost? And I think sometimes it might be a little short-sighted. Must be the money. Uh, anyway, we're moving on. We want to talk about the Belmont. Um, you know, I've never considered myself a horse racing aficionado. Nowhere near in the ballpark that you are. And we've talked about the Kentucky Derby on, on our, I think the last time you were on, we were talking about the Kentucky Derby. But there's something always about the Belmont that kind of, it always takes my days and, and, I think about Bob Fortas every time, and no one, there's very few people out there who know who Bob Fortas is if you're not in a horse race. And he was, he was a, a guy that, a colleague of, of yours and mine for, for many years before he passed away a few years ago. Um, but, you know, I think about Bob Fortas, and, and, and the reason why I say bring him out is not only was he a horse rider, a horse racing rider, but he was an aficionado of the sport loved the sport. It wasn't about the majors. It was about the fairgrounds and everything. And so when I, when, when I get a chance to watch a race like this and think about those days and the people that love horse racing, the Melmont's a big deal because this is the last of the three majors, per se, and it's such a short window that, that, uh, that the focus is on the sport. And, um, but I, I think the Belmont being the longest of the three in this long race and these horses aren't used to running these races, it's, it's a different kind of special kind of race um, and it, and it, it is important to a guy like me who doesn't watch horse racing all the time. Well, look, I think, Jim, the sport's evolving and changing like everything. And uh, I think there's an argument. You know, my, my friend and colleague, Pat Forty, has long argued that the sport should change the calendar. And that, you know, just like the Derby is the first Saturday in May, he thinks the Triple Crown should be like a month apart, each one. And the first Saturday in June should be the Preakness. And the first Saturday in July should be the Belmont. And then you've got really a good amount of space in between races. You might attract larger fields. And the, like golf does. The game is, yeah, the game, is, the game has changed. I mean, these horses are trained differently. And I think we've seen some kind of less than stellar fields in the Preakness and Belmont because of the short time between races. I mean, the fact is people don't – race these thoroughbreds at that level every two weeks, the way it way this calendar plays out. I mean, it's three weeks between the Preakness and the Belmont, but that's still a quick turn back. And we end up with an eight-horse field in the Belmont. Uh, I think if this were a, were a month apart between races, you'd have a much bigger field, and that's always better for uh, gambling purposes. You have a, more more options, creates better more betting opportunities, better, enhanced betting opportunities. And that's what the sport's really all about uh, is the, is the betting. So uh, I would like to see that. I don't know if it'll ever happen just because of tradition. There's 
staunch, uh, you know, opposition to changing the calendar. But I do think it would increase interest in the sport as well because, let's face it, I mean, we're about to enter kind of the dead period here. I always, always laugh. This July and June is when, like, Europe takes over the sporting Brutal. calendar. We end up with, like, you know, the French Open, the Wimbledon, the Tour de France, and the Formula One. This is kind of when they take over. Uh, and I would like to see maybe the racing take advantage of that because there's really not a lot of other stuff going on in June and July. It's the way we've always done it, right, Dunk? That's always the answer to everything. Yeah. We've, we've always done it that way. I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't fly anymore. So, I mean, hopefully they will look at that. And you look at this field, and because of there's only eight horses, there's not going to be a rich strike per se. I mean, rich strike is running in this, in this race. But, right. But there's not going to be an 80 to 1 shot. Exactly. I mean, your longest shots are are 20 to 1. And really beyond that, you have a 12 to 1 and a 10 to 1 and a bunch of favorites. I mean, so, I mean, it's, it's, you look at the field and and I think that if you, like you say, and I was looking at actually at the background and and the races that these horses have run. And you're right. I mean, they, they don't run races that close together anymore. Um, So to get a triple crown winner, it's almost like when you've got a pitcher that's pitching a no-hitter um, and he normally pitches 100 or 105 pitches in a game and he's in the seventh inning and he's got a no-hitter and he's at 100, 110 pitch bar and the manager's about to, like, is almost begging that he gives up a hit because he doesn't want to leave him in anymore. And so, yeah. I mean, you get a horse. I mean, now Rich Strike didn't run in the Preakness, but that's going to be unusual, I think, going forward. I mean... So you're you're asking these horses to do something they're not used to doing, and uh, you could see eventually a horse get hurt because he or she is running in a race that maybe he or she shouldn't. Well, I mean, I think Epicenter is the prime example of this, right? I mean, you could argue he was good enough, ran winning races in both the Derby and the Preakness. Had some bad luck. He had got caught in a really fast early pace. He was the only horse that hung on in the top like eight horses on the backstretch, all of them faded at that really fast pace, and he almost still won the race. And he ran an incredible Kentucky Derby. And then he had a, really a terrible trip in the Preakness. You would think for that amount of purse and the, and the prestige of winning the Belmont, he would come back and run here. Uh, he would probably be, if not favorite, he would certainly be the second favorite. And yet they're giving him time off because of the, the you know, how much, he's put into these last couple races. So that he's a prime example of, of the modern training regimen and how it, it really doesn't fit into this triple crown series. Okay. Well, with, with my limited handicapping skills, um, I, I admit I've spent more time. I, I was assigned a task of previewing the Belmont, not so much from a betting perspective, but just kind of notes about each horse and going through and, and in the process of doing this research on each horse. I spent more time looking each one of them up than I would normally do. Easier to do with an eight-horse field. But tell me if I'm if I'm way off. These two favorites, it's too easy. Um, I, this filly, I know there aren't a lot of fillies that run in the Belmont. This is only the – Nest is only the 24th filly ever to run in, in, in the Belmont. There's only been three that have ever won the race. But there's something intriguing about her that, that just kind of grabbed my eye Maybe that her sire is curling a horse that that I know. I mean, the horse ran, you know, won the Preakness in in 2007. But I remember curling as this big name horse that that came out that you know was it was in the news. And I, I think that she has a chance to win this race. 
Yeah, no, a lot of really smart people think the same thing because of her breeding. I think she's out of maybe out of ta- a tappet line, which is at a historically uh, has produced Belmont winners. And I think the race style sets up for her. She's probably going to be just off the early pace setter, which is probably going to be We the People. I would imagine We the People is going to go yeah. to the lead. That's how that horse runs. And traditionally, you know, you tend to think, oh, it's a, a mile and a half race. That's going to favor closers, and it just hasn't worked out that way. Uh, it used to be that way. You wanted a horse that was going to close from off the pace at that distance. But the last 10 years, the way horses are bred in America, they're bred for speed to carry that speed over long distances. You kind of get the lead, and, and that deep, sandy track at Belmont kind of can actually work against closers. So uh, we're going to see if we, the people, can go that distance. And I think Nest is going to sit probably – in second or third and see if she can, uh, you know, turn for home and, and have a kick that can get by we, the people. And we're, and we're going to see if, uh, you know, Rich Shrike, who's obviously a deep closer, if that's going to work, uh, you know, will they go fast enough to set that closing kick up? But Rich Strike is training very well. Everybody I've uh, talked to says this horse is the real deal. It, it was a fluke because he won it 80 to one, but he obviously has talent. So I think it's fascinating in some ways because I do think I could see one of five horses winning this race between we, the people, Mo Donald's going to have a lot of backers. Yeah. Um, creative minister hasn't really done anything wrong. That horse is probably getting better. And then, like you said, the Philly, especially at eight to one, JD, that's, that's pretty juicy odds. And I certainly, uh, Todd Pletcher, the trainer yeah. of Ness, he knows how to win the Belmont. He has a great track record. And another wrinkle that uh, uh, people aren't really talking about that much about, <clears throat> there's a chance of rain tomorrow in, in New York. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, I, you know, how would that play if this ends up being a non-fast track, whether it's sloppy or just a, just enough to, to make things interesting? I mean, that could, play, that could weigh in as well. No, I know. I think it's kind of reduced a little bit the chances of rain as opposed to what it was like just a couple of days ago. But, look, if it's a sloppy track, that usually tends to favor speed horses because of the kickback and the mud. Uh, that tends to favor horses on the lead. But, again, it comes back to breeding. You know, I've read a lot about this. I've never understood it, why some horses are better mudders than others, and a lot of it has to do with the breeding and how their hooves are shaped and the way they stride. And, uh, and it also comes down to how the track consistency is from track to track with water and rain and sometimes – some tracks get cuppy, some tracks get slippery and muddy, and uh, it's they're all different. So it's really a factor that I don't want to mess with as a as a better because I think it throws a, a, a complete uh, element that it's hard to to find in the past performances. Uh, to me, it, it makes it a little more wide open. Give me your daily double. Look, I like we the people. I know that's boring. It's two to one. That's about as boring as it gets, but. I think that horse is get, getting better, and that's what I look for in the Belmont is horses that haven't had a long campaign. So I, I would go with We the People, and I would throw in uh, maybe Creative Minister. I like that horse a lot. So I'll go with those two, even though I do think Nest, Rich Strike, and Mo Donegal, any of those could win this race, I think, and it wouldn't shock me at all. And for the uh, the amateur a daily double, I'm going to go with Mo Donegal and Nest. That's going to be my 
my boxed daily double there. I'm going to throw that together and we're going to see. But I do like We the People too. But, you know, it's funny. No one's really talking. You, you mentioned him, but nobody's really talking about Rich Strike. I, what, I think it'd be a great, a great story if that horse did something similar to what he did in the Derby. I mean, I don't think he's going to. You can't close between the horse. There's there's not 19 horses in this race. There's only eight, so right. it's gonna be it's gonna look a lot different. But if Rich Strike wins this race, he goes down in, in memory as one of the, one of the best horses, and at least in this Triple Crown leg. So it's not easy to win two yeah. two legs of a Triple look, Crown. Look, JD, man, like I have friends, big time handicapping friends that, that know their stuff. I mean, these guys compete in national contests and stuff, and Mo Donegal and. Uh, Zandon and uh, the other the, were supposedly the big name closers in the Kentucky Derby. They had the perfect setup to win that race. I mean, they went so fast in the Derby, they should have closed the way Rich Strike did. So we can't discount what we saw with our own eyes. I mean, Rich Strike was eating up ground. I mean, that horse was blowing by horses, and I don't think it was a fluke. I think that horse is just good and getting better, and uh, they figured out how to how to run. Uh, his best running style. So hands, you know, hats off to the, the conditioner and the, and the connections there, because uh, I think 80 to one now looking back was uh, preposterous on a horse that has that kind of talent at that distance. Well, I'm no expert, but uh, that's one of the greatest closing races I've ever seen in my life. Um, what that horse did, it just it just boggles the mind to be able to get through that traffic and win that race the way that he did. It's just incredible, and I'm glad I got to see yeah. it live. Uh, all right, great, okay. great, great ride by the jockey too. You know, he for did a sure. great job of. I mean, you got to be courageous to do that. And yeah, that was for sure pretty fearless. Want to touch on uh, the NBA Finals and and um, you know it, it's it's I, I went into this thing thinking Golden State was going to win fairly easily. Um, I didn't know if it would be, I didn't think it would be a sweep, but I thought they'd win it in five games. Um, and here we are now to where they can't win it in five games. If they win it at all, they're now the underdogs. They're almost a two to one underdog. Um, has this surprised you at all? I mean, not, not so much. I mean, I, I don't think you can be surprised at all when you get to an NBA finals, if you made it this far through the playoffs, it's not going to be that big of a surprise if you win the championships, but have you been surprised the way the Celtics have been able to play and, kind of physically dominate the Warriors thus far? No, not at all. I mean, I, look, I thought the Warriors would win, but I thought it would go seven. And I felt like whoever came out of that Boston-Miami uh, series, uh, both those teams are defensive-minded, mentally tough teams, man, and that was a war. And I think those teams got a competitive edge mentally and physically by that series that the Warriors didn't get because they kind of skated through a little bit in the West. And, uh, you know, I was watching that first game, game one, and even though the Warriors got up double digits, there was something about the Celtics. And, and you, if you want, if you're, you know, viewers out there, listeners, just watch the body language. You know, Sean Payton was a big believer of body language. He got that from Bill Parcells. And the Celtics are masters at body language. While the, while the Warriors are more emotional and we see Draymond Green doing all of his antics and Jordan Poole doing all this, you know, stuff on the court, man, the, the Celtics don't, they're unfazed. They're like robots out there. They remind me of the old Rick Pitino teams, you know, that had at Kentucky and Louisville. Uh, you know, the crowd's going crazy. The other team goes on a run. And the Celtics are just, they don't bat an eye. They don't show any emotion. 
They don't let the highs and lows, ebbs and flows of a game get to them. And I think that mental toughness, in addition to their physical toughness, has carried over and kind of, I think, kind of surprised the Warriors, frankly. And the way the games are being officiated also, I think, plays into the Celtics' hands. So I felt like the, the Heat would also have done very similar uh, to the Warriors because of the, the mentality of guys like Jimmy Butler. And we're seeing it now with Brown and, and Horford and that group, Smart. I mean, those guys are just tough dogs, man, and they get after you. And I still think this thing's going to go seven. I don't think the Warriors are going anywhere, but I think the Celtics will prevail ultimately. Yeah, great point on the body language. I never really thought about that, but I, you're 100% right. And you're right about Sean Payton. All those sound clips of him talking to different players as they come off the sidelines and telling them to, to change change their attitude yeah. and change the way they're looking and all those sorts of things. Um, it's going to be interesting. Uh, but, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, I think the Celtics have been certainly been the tougher team uh, thus far. There's zero question that's true. Um, and Draymond, what effect will he have? How will the officials officiate? Because every officiating crew officiates different, and it's certainly inconsistent, which is always a problem I have in these series, which is why I always thought that the same officiating crew should get the entire series because I think there needs to be consistency everywhere there isn't they do it in baseball same crew gets gets a series in baseball they need to do that that same thing in the nba all right give me your prediction for you say it's going to go seven do you do you uh which team do you do you like here yeah no look i like the celtics but it wouldn't shock me if the warriors came back and won this they're so electric and talented uh and steph curry can take over a game we've seen that but i still like the celtics i just i just like the their demeanor like the way their coaches uh, coaching, and uh, I just feel like they're a little bit of a team of destiny. Since midseason, they've been the best team in the NBA. And uh, but I thought the Heat were going to win the title. I, I almost made a bet on them, Jim, before the playoffs started because people were discounting them, and they gave Boston everything they could handle. And I felt like, well, look, if if, if Boston is good enough to beat Miami, then they certainly can win it all. So I felt like they could easily do what they're doing now and. Uh, I do think back and forth, it's going to go back and forth. But I think ultimately when you play defense the way they do, share the ball, they've got enough talent on offense to where different guys can carry them. I think ultimately that'll be more consistent than the way the Warriors have to rely so much on Curry and Thompson. So I'll go with the Celtics. Yeah, I still think Golden State's going to win. However, I will say this, the same thing that I've been saying for the past week, if you thought before the series started that Boston was going to win this series. There's no reason for you to change your mind now. They have done uh, nothing to make anyone change their minds. Um, so um, even when it was 1-0, um, I, I still think that if you like Boston before, you should like Boston now. I just think the Warriors are going to find some kind of way to win, uh, although I'm not nearly as confident on them now as I was uh, about a week and a half ago. Um, Lastly, before we get to the Saints, I want to just spend a brief time, but I'd like you to sum up uh, what you saw from LSU baseball. One thing that bothers me in the social world of social media is these fans who just have these unrealistic expectations of if you don't win or at least go to Omaha every year, you're a failure. And for this LSU team to go where they did and be up and down and the way they played throughout this regional in Hattiesburg last week kind of, to me, was you know, just a microcosm of their season, right? I mean, up and down, pitching's not great, defense is okay, 
and they can hit the hell out of the ball. But sometimes it's just not good enough against a good team, and people have to be okay with that. I think what Coach Johnson is doing is he's got this team on the right direction. I think LSU is going to be Omaha bound again real soon. And I, as, as an LSU alum and as a, a fan to some degree, you have to like what you see. Look, man, I was blown away at those comebacks they make. I'm not a huge college baseball fan. Uh, you know, I don't really cover a lot of it. I think I got that from Pete Finney. <laughs> he, he despised college baseball. <laughs> yes, he uh, I think more, more so because the games last forever. They take like four hours because the pitching and, uh, but watching those games, I mean, I just couldn't believe they came back and rallied both times. And the second time when they beat Southern Miss, I thought there's no way Southern Miss is going to recover from this. I mean, that was a devastating loss for Southern Miss. They had a four run lead in the ninth inning. All of a sudden they just completely imploded. So I was more impressed with Southern Miss mentally coming back from that than I was disappointed in LSU, you know, like, but again, I'm, I'm not an LSU fan. So I get, I get both sides of this LSU fans understand LSU's prioritized baseball. They have tremendous resources. Uh, they should be able to recruit at the highest level, but you got a coach, you know, manager Jay Johnson that's taken over in his first year. There's going to be a little bit of a transition, I think, uh, I loved what I saw from them, the way they never folded, the way they, you know, th- this ability to rally uh, against Kennesaw State, you know, 10 runs in the eighth inning. That stuff just doesn't happen, man. That, that, was, a, that was really two miraculous wins they had. And I think it, it raised the expectations. Once they won those two games, everybody thought, oh, this is a team of destiny. They're going to just march on to the Super Regionals. And credit to Southern Miss, who obviously has a very good team. They got to host the regional for a reason. And uh, they somehow mentally got it back together and overcame LSU. But baseball, Jim, is a, you know, we know this that sport. I mean, you get one great pitching performance or one hot bat, and and it can lift a program like a Southern Miss or, uh, you know, some we see it every year. Teams get to Omaha that, uh, don't have maybe the resources or the big name or the high-profile connections. They get there because of uh, the just the basic element of the sport of baseball. Uh, I mean, the best teams in Major League Baseball go basically ten and six. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's right. So it, there's there, there's always going to be more parity in that sport. I think it leads to greater upsets and things like that. And I, I think Southern Miss was probably the like Scott Rabelais wrote the better team, uh, but I think. The way LSU won those early games raised everybody's hopes. Well, I mean, and also you look at baseball as opposed to other sports, even basketball or hockey, which is their big playoffs are going on right now. The difference between baseball and those other sports is you don't have time to sit and, and, and you know, just cry about what happened yesterday. I mean, you got to go right back out there and play. And that's what I love about baseball. You can't sit around and think about it. In basketball, you have a day or two days or sometimes three days in between games to think about what happened the, the previous game. In hockey, it's the same thing. You don't have that time in baseball. You might be playing the next morning after you just blew a, a three-run lead or a five-run lead or whatever, and you got to get back out there in a tournament and play the next morning. Yeah, that's a great point. And it shows also in the depth of your pitching staff, right? Yeah. That's where it gets exposed. And I think that's an area everybody knows. Jay Johnson said it. 
that's an area that they've got to improve in the program. And I, I have no doubt they will, but uh, just the resolve the players played with, the camaraderie, how they stuck together in the face of adversity, those are all building blocks for this Absolutely. program. I think people should, people should be very excited about the future of LSU baseball. LSU fans out there, settle down. Settle down, Skippy. It'll be all right. It, 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 this, this program is going in the right direction. And um, do me a favor, guys out there, if you're listening to this and you're on social media, think before you type. I mean, it, just, just do that. I mean, read it. If it sounds stupid, don't post it. Okay? That's all I ask. All right, moving on. Uh, Jeff Duncan here with a sports columnist. On the Datitude podcast on this Friday morning, we're moving on to the New Orleans Saints um, mini camp next week. Before we all take a little time off and go our own separate ways for a couple of weeks, and um, Dunk, uh, before I get to the Saints per se, I, I always uh, like to. Look, I'm at the age now when when the Hall of Fame class comes out, it's not like, oh yeah, those guys were great when I was a kid. I wasn't a kid. I mean, we talk about these these people that are the three guys that are, that are entered into the Hall of Fame. You know, no kid. Freddie McAfee, I remember very well. Uh, Fast Freddie and uh, Devery Henderson, of course. We all remember Devery Henderson, both at his time at, at LSU and the Saints. And then uh, Kevin Mangum, who's been with the Saints for a very long time as a trainer. Give me your initial thoughts on this this class of the New Orleans Saints Hall of Fame. Well, I loved it. I love each one of those selections. Um, Freddie Mac, I think I'm partial to these special teams guys. I, you know, on the Pro Football Hall of Fame committee, I voted for Steve Tasker, Brian Mitchell. Uh, I love to vote for those guys. I, I think they're overlooked. They're part of the game. Uh, it's a key part of the game. And when you excel the way Fred McAfee did for so many years, he was a, a you know a Pro Bowler, special teams captain, had great longevity. Also, was a good running back. You know, Philadelphia, Mississippi's native son. Uh, you know, Mississippi College. I'm so old, I covered Fred McAfee in college. I remember him at, uh, playing for Mississippi College against Northeast Louisiana. He was a standout running back. And then he comes to the Saints in, in a coaching capacity. He's a key part of that coaching staff, does a lot of things, wears a lot of different hats. So certainly a deserving candidate. And then Devery Henderson, of course, was the, we all know, the deep threat on those great passing attacks with Drew Brees. Still has two of, if I'm not mistaken, two of the, the highest yards per catch averages in single season in NFL history, uh, you know, like 19 yards a catch or something like that. Uh, he was the deep threat uh, opposite Marcus Colston, along with uh, along with uh, Robert Meacham and the, the complementary receivers that they had back then with Henderson and Meacham and Lance Moore, all of them with different skill sets and Colston. Uh, you know, I think everybody eventually on these Super Bowl teams is going to make the Hall of Fame. I'm not sure I agree with that. Uh, as a matter of fact, in some of my voting, I have not voted for just because they were on the, Hall, the Super Bowl team doesn't mean they're Hall of Famers. But I think Debra Anderson certainly has a strong case. And then Kevin, uh, we were talking with him at practice last week. I mean, he's the second longest tenured employee in the whole Saints organization behind Jay Romig. Jay Romig's got Kevin back a few years, but tireless, thankless worker. Does all the, I mean, all the players love him. It's a guy that's like uh, gone from regime to regime to regime obviously he's very highly valued and uh just a quiet kind of mississippi guy that uh has paid his dues and i'm glad to see him finally get recognized jay romig is old enough to to be the longest tenured saints employee that's hard to believe my friend jay romig um i you know i didn't think he was uh i thought he was you know 
55 years old or something like that. Jay has uh, <laughs> got me by a few years then. I think Jay's 45 years or something like that with the Saints. Okay. Uh, and you're talking about a guy that wears high hats. I mean, I, I think if they ever lost Jay Roaming, the whole organization would implode. I mean, he, he does so many different things for people out there. And if you don't think Jay Roaming's important, just talk to someone like Drew Brees or uh, yeah. you know Sean Payton. Uh, they all they all speak so highly of him. I mean, they they know how important he is. Well, since it's my wife's birthday weekend, I'll throw out this personal little nugget. On the night that my wife and I got engaged, um, Jay Romig happened to be sitting at the table next to us, and I told him what I was going to do before, uh, before, before it happened, and he gave me some words of encouragement. So it's Jay awesome. has been a, been a friend for a long time. So uh, Yeah, he's the best. So, and so not just with the Saints organization, just in the city, Jay Romig is, yeah. a, is a huge figure. So uh, one day he'll be in that Saints Hall of Fame. All right, uh, the team, and, you know, as we go into minicamp now, I always find this time of year interesting. Um, there's, the roster still isn't quite set. Uh, people like to ask me lots of questions about certain players and blah, blah, blah. But I'll ask you, how do you feel about this, this roster? If you were a, a member of the Saints administration or Saints coaching staff, how would you feel about where the roster is right now? Well, I think the roster's pretty set. I mean, they may add one or two more guys in camp like like they usually tend to do. But, um, I mean, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room there. They've got to save some of that money. Uh, I know they're working to try and wrap up some guys long-term, so they're going to need some money for that, as well as you have to have a certain amount of money just uh, to sign players during the season once injuries occur. So I wouldn't – if they do bring in another player or two, uh, it's going to be somebody at a, probably the veterans minimum. It's not going to be some big name. There's really not, not any big names left at this point. Uh, so I, I think what we see right now is probably what you're going to get uh, in the fall. Uh, there is one name out there that people keep asking about, and I keep telling them it's not going to happen. If it hasn't happened by now, it's not going to happen. <clears throat> I don't really think it's a need anyway, and no offense to Quan Alexander, who I think was a great player for the Saints, but at the price tag that he has – with his injury pass and where the Saints are now at the linebacker position, I don't think he's going to be a Saint. Yeah, I don't either. I mean, I think they're very happy with Pete Werner. And, um, you know, Pete Werner played well when he came in. I, I, you know, I never – I'll be honest with you. I've never – maybe maybe it's because he's an LSU guy. He gets a lot of uh, hype. I There's mean, no let's question. face it, that happens, but – I never felt like Quan Alexander played as well as people made it out like he played. I, I've never felt that way. Uh, I felt like he was one of these guys that has a name, was a fairly high draft pick and played at LSU. So we, and he made a few splash plays, but he also made a lot of bad plays. I mean, the, the, the countered every good play made. And I think the Saints coaches have seen that. And uh, they're happy with Pete Warner. And I'll, I'll be – the other thing, I'm, and Larry Holder and I used to always go back and forth on this, I've never gotten excited about linebackers. I just feel like in the NFL, the way the game's played now, it's almost all about pass rushers and pass coverers. And the linebackers are kind of, you know, the Saints have a dominant one in DeMario Davis. Uh, and, and they only play two linebackers really at a time now. Uh, I feel like that position's going the way of almost like the fullback in a way. Uh, the Saints don't play a 3-4. You know, they play a 4-3 and they really play a, a, a four, two, five is what they really yeah. play. 
That's right. So, Sean Gardner Johnson's almost like their third linebacker. Yeah. So I just feel like that that position, and in particular, Quan Alexander gets way more attention and interest than it really is necessary. I think the Saints feel the same way. Uh, they're fine, I think, going with Pete Werner. Yeah, I don't necessarily disagree. I think uh, I'm probably not as weak on Quan as you are, but <clears throat> excuse me. To me, the thing is, when he has a really good game. He has it usually from beginning, from start to end, he's noticeable. He has those games, but the problem is they only happen two or three times <clears throat> a year. And then he's hurt three or four games a year as well. So, yep. again, the price tag that, that he's going to cost, I don't know if the Saints are willing to pay. Look, J.D., I mean, Go ahead. the guy's on the street. Every, every team in the league's seen the film. If he were so highly valued, he'd be on a team right now. Yeah, I agree. And uh, he probably will be on a team at some point. Uh, but not for the price tag that he's asking for. And, um, you know, I, what I do like is where the Saints are right now as, fa- as far as if they do have an injury somewhere, I do think they need another running back. We'll see. They may try to go with what they have and then see how it ha- works out with some of these young guys. But I like the fact that they do have some flexibility with the cap right now that they still can add something if they need to. Look, I think you could make a case for maybe a running back. Uh, you know, we don't know the uncertainty with Alvin Kamara. And I, I think we need to get that addressed next week. I'm going to talk to Dennis Allen about it. I mean, where, where does that stand? Uh, are right. they expecting to have Alvin Kamara? You know, like, what, what's the situation? Uh, I know uh, good news was Mark Ingram was at practice this week. He hadn't been there uh, up to this point. So that's a good sign. Uh, but I think the Saints certainly could use another player at that position. Otherwise, you're looking at, you know, Tony Jones Jr., Dwayne Washington, this rookie Abram Smith they like a lot. Um, you know, so you don't have a lot of options there if Alvin Kamara is out for an extended period of time. Well, and we know that even if Mark Ingram is uh, 100% healthy, um, that there's zero chance that he can shoulder the load of what a NFL running back he, he can't do what Derrick Henry does. And I don't mean athletically. I mean just in the amount of work that he's going to get. I mean, Mark Ingram is at, at best a 15-carry-a-game guy now. So you're going to have to have yeah. a number two guy. And if, if, if Alvin Kamara is gone for six games, uh, which it could happen at any time, right? I mean, it doesn't necessarily happen, have to happen for game one. It could even worse. What happens if the Saints jump out to this great start? They're winning the division. And then, you know, around Thanksgiving, it comes out that that AK or even worse, maybe into the playoffs, AK suspended. You have to have something there, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's probably an area that they would address in the fall. Uh, I think the way the Saints operate, they you know they want to see these guys on the field, yeah. get a chance to evaluate. Uh, but you know, look, man, OTAs so overrated now, JD. I mean, like they're out there in shorts. I mean, they're not in pads. There's competitive football being played. It's, it's, it's routes on air. There's no hey, way to avoid the ratings, buddy. Don't lower the ratings. People take, people take the, it's like life and death to some of these people. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. People doing observations, uh, you know, uh, you know, look, one of the things I want to watch, I was telling Luke uh, Johnson and Rod Walker yesterday, our colleagues at, at practice. I want to see Chris Olave when people can jam him at the line of scrimmage. I mean, that's the big Concern. You talk to scouts about Olave. No one's worried about his ability to run a route, his ability to get in and out of cuts, his ability to get deep. It's can he get off the line of scrimmage? 
I mean, he's not a big guy. He's not physical. Right. He didn't have that mindset. So the Saints are going to have to do some things to free him up, bunch bunch formations, things like that. But I want to see it because the Saints have some of the most physical corners and defensive backs in the entire league. Lattimore, you know, P.J. Williams, Sanchi Gardner-Johnson, those guys will get in your jock at the line of scrimmage. None of that's going on right now. I mean, you know, we can't judge and evaluate any of it. It's just like kind of like a – uh, you know, I don't know. It's it's like an intramural practice okay. out there. So Even if that. it's just hard for me to get excited about what we're watching right now. I'll, I'll be ready for training camp. Well, there are some things that I think that are important to watch right now. And you could tell me, I mean, Michael Thomas still hasn't practiced, correct? And what, what, what's is there any buzz? Is he even out there? We've, have we seen his face? Well, there's a number of guys like him that are rehabbing injuries. He's one, Taysom Hill. Marcus Davenport, Peyton Turner. And you just go down the list of these guys. Uh, Blake Gillikin's been out there, but he hasn't punted one punt. Uh, they're all rehabbing injuries. So they're all either off to the side or in the indoor facility doing work. Uh, just depends on who you are. Uh, Taysom Mill's not even at the facility. He's, he's working with his, pri- you know, his private trainer out in uh, Idaho, I think it is. So uh, everybody's different, but I think everybody's in you know, collaboration with the Saints on these things. And Mike Thomas, I know, is running again. I think their concern with Mike Thomas is getting him ready for training camp, not OTAs and mini camps. So we'll see if he if he's not out there for the first week of training camp, I think that's a bad sign. But mini camp, even if they're not uh, participating, they still have to be there, correct? Yeah, or they get fined and and look, that's that's one of the things I think will be interesting to see next week. You know, some of these guys that aren't there, and we had more guys show up this week. PJ Williams, uh, it was there. Uh, Mark Ingram, I mentioned, was there. Uh, but there's still some conspicuous absences. Uh, Mario Davis, uh, Deontay Hardy, uh, CJ Gardner Johnson. Uh, I think they're not there, and I don't think it's coincidental, JD, that they're not there. They're healthy and none of them has really a contract beyond next season. I think there's something to that. Uh, they probably are being advised, hey, if this is not mandatory, you don't need to be there because you are you have no long-term security. Uh, so I do think it's interesting, a guy like DeMario Davis, who's been a team leader, certainly one of the stars of the team, is not at these uh, off-season uh, training activities, you know, that – uh, that's something you would expect him to be at. And I think it's probably contract related. You probably won't say that publicly, but there's certainly a message being sent. More for today's theme song must be the money. Um, hey, that's the world that we live in today in every single professional sport. Um, it is what it is. It's not like it used to be. There are a lot of things today that, uh, you know, we talk about, Hey, that's the way it used to be. And that's not a good excuse. There are some things that are better the way that it used to be. Just my opinion, but uh, we're never going to have any of that all over. We're never going to have that again. Um, talk about where what you see out of out of Dennis Allen thus far, and, and I know it's early. I mean, we can't, you know, just just how you see his demeanor and how he's going through things and how he's run his his OTAs thus far, how he's handled himself with the media thus far. He's not new to this. He's done it before. But just talk about what you've seen out of Dennis Allen through the first uh, few months here of his reign. Well, practices are, are certainly different than they were under Peyton. And I mean, they're, they're run at different times. You know, Dennis is a big 
outside guy. You know, he's a Texas guy. So the Texas heat, he's used to it. Sorry, I'm getting ready to sneeze. But he he is willing to put that team out there in the middle of those 90-degree temperatures, which I think is interesting. Very instructional type of head coach, a lot like Peyton in that regard, more of a teacher. There's not a lot of yelling and screaming out there. It's, it's interesting. We were noticing that yesterday, that the yellers and screamers on this staff uh, aren't there anymore. I mean, Curtis Johnson used to be that way. Uh, you know, the, the defensive line coach, Ryan Nielsen, still got a little bit of that in him. But the, quiet, the practices are quiet, and I think that reflects the way Dennis Allen coaches. You know, he's a very, very cerebral guy. Uh, I do think, and, and I know we're going to talk about this, but my column that's running today on Matt Ray, the new uh, sports science, director of sports science, I think is, you know, is one of his first hires as a head coach. And I think that speaks to his philosophy. I mean, Matt Ray is a Ph.D., He's a doctor, and uh, he's not your typical. You, you know, we're used to strength and conditioning coaches being these big, you know, jarhead, you know, lantern jaw, uh, veins popping out of their neck, screaming, the, imploring these guys in the weight room and on the practice field. Matt Ray is standing out there with a notebook, uh, you know, with glasses on. He's a doctor, and he's just kind of quietly taking notes. And then he comes in and crunches a bunch of data, and they spit it out of a computer and they, they, they implement their programs that way. It's kind of uh, reflective of Dennis Allen's, I think, tenure and that they're getting more cutting edge. They're modernizing. They want to be on the forefront of strength and conditioning. And they're not so much about trying to lift as heavy a weight as possible and get as strong as you can. They're more about dynamic training, uh, trying to improve their speed. And most of all, trying to prevent injuries, which we all know last year, was probably the most injury-riddled season they've ever had. So I think it's, it shows that Dennis Allen's thinking of everything, uh, and that's a trait that Sean Payton displayed, that attention to detail. Now we'll see if it pays off uh, this season. You know what I find interesting as well, um, and we're, we're hoping to get Mickey Loomis on the show in the next month or so, um, but what I love about Mickey, and I know he's got, you know, he's had Sean Payton for 16 years, so it's easy to say that, but... He, he lets these coaches and he lets his people, he trusts his people to do uh, what they think, the way the system, the way they think is best, right? I mean, you could easily say, you're coming in here, uh, don't fix it if it ain't broke. But Dennis Allen coming in and instituting his way with his staff and doing things a little bit different, I like that. And uh, I like the fact that the, the, the Saints top brass say, you know what, we trust you guys, go out there and do it the way you think you need to do it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great leadership and management, empowering your people to do their jobs, and I think that's one of Mickey Loomis's greatest strengths. And you know, this new strength coach Matt Ray, I was talking to him yesterday, and he talked about that. He was he said like, look, you know, I wasn't sure if they were ready to overhaul the whole program and go all in on this sports science stuff, or if they just wanted to incorporate some of it into their existing program. And he said, to their credit, they went all in. So like, everything they're doing out there is different. And it's, it's, I think, a, a commitment to the modernization of sports performance. And it just shows the Saints are not going to sit on their hands. You know, we talked earlier about doing things the same way we've always done it. Uh, credit to the Saints for taking a chance here on doing something a little outside the box and hiring a guy away from Nick Saban in Alabama who wanted to keep this guy, and the Saints went and got him. I think that speaks to just how important they, they view this position. You know, I don't know about you, but uh, until about 10 years ago, I was always a uh, 
very too much to my discredit. Uh, always uh, this, that's the way we've always done it, kind of kind of editor or writer or whatever. Um, and you and I, I think, have learned in this business that has, has very much evolved over the past 10 years. If you don't adapt, you're going to get left in the dust. And I, I think that's one thing the Saints have always been good at. Yeah, I 100% agree. And this sports science stuff is a prime example of it. And uh, I don't know too many teams in the league doing it the way the Saints are doing it. Now we'll see. We'll see. Are they going to avoid some of these hamstring injuries and soft tissue injuries, the muscle pulls, the things that, you know, they don't sideline a guy for the whole season, but they sideline you for four or five games. And the Saints had an inordinate number of those last year. And uh, anything they can do, I think, to improve that is going to help in terms of wins and losses because we all know the best ability is availability. I encourage everyone to go out and uh, read Jeff Duncan's column this week on NOLA.com, NOLA.com slash sports, if you want to be more specific. You can find it there um, about the Saints' new strength and conditioning coach, which always, to me, is an underrated position on any NFL team. And uh, so go out there and read that. Duncan, I'm going to put you on the spot. I know you and I are both going on vacation after next week. you know, you're going to be out there in minicamp next week. I might uh, want to pick your brain before you go on vacation to, to see what your thoughts are after we see uh, the first couple of days of minicamp and, and see what's going on out there. Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see once they get the pads on at minicamp and start competing a little bit. Uh, and it's also our first chance to see what the depth chart's going to look like, yeah. early look at the depth chart. So those things are always fun to see. And I will say this, the one thing you can observe is just the size and the speed of these guys. And Trevor Pinning, their left tackle, is <laughs> a, a massive monster. dude, man. Oh, my that God. I don't think monster. anybody could make Andres Pete look small. But lined up next to Andres Pete, those are two large human beings. And he can move for a big guy. So I think it'll be interesting to see if he has a, if he struggles. As I think Jeff Ireland, when I talked to Jeff Ireland a couple of weeks ago, he said there's going to be a transition for Trevor Pinning. There's no doubt. Coming from Northern Iowa, but they have a, a nice uh, pile of clay there to mold. Uh, you know, a lot to work with there for the offensive line coaches. And uh, it's going to be fun to watch him going against the Cam Jordans of the world, these savvy veterans when they get to, to the pass rush drills. Yeah, he's not playing the Chippewas anymore, is he? No. No, it's a little different. <laughs> a little different level of competition. Just take the Mac, buddy. All right, well, but I, I do think that he is going to be a, a great player for this team. Uh, Dunk, thank you so much for, for spending time with us on this Friday morning. We're going to talk to you soon, uh, and um, we'll see what happens at, at minicamp next week. Yeah, I look forward to it, J.D. Thanks for having me on, buddy. Everybody have a great weekend. Again, everybody go check out Jeff Duncan's column on the Saints' new strength and conditioning coach out on NOLA.com as we speak. Interesting takes uh, by Dunk on all sorts of things. Um, I think there's going to be some interesting storylines coming out of Saints camp. Um, who's going to emerge as that that running back that's going to take over if and when Alvin Kamara gets suspended? Well, we don't even know if it's going to happen this year. I mean, the worst thing that can happen really is if this court case gets pushed back again, does happen sometime in the season, word comes out and then the NFL comes down and hands down a suspension in the middle of the season or worse towards the end of the season, and it lingers in the playoffs. I mean, that's possible. I mean, you hope that doesn't happen, but it's possible. 
So the Saints are going to have to be prepared at the position. I'm certain they're thinking of it. Um, how will it affect how it will affect the roster and whether they carry an extra running back? Who's going to make it? Who's going to be uh, getting reps? We'll have to wait and see. But it's certainly going to affect decisions, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that comes um, as we go in the future. A little personal note before we wrap up the show. I want to wish a happy birthday, 29 again, Drea Derry, my lovely bride. She keeps telling the kids that she's 29. I mean, I try to explain to these children. We've been together for 16 years now, so... If she is 29, then, uh, I mean, you could do the math. I mean, come on. 29. All right, if she's 29, I'm 39. How's that? So happy birthday to Drea Derry. Um, as we leave you this weekend, we will leave you with this song that goes back to how we started this whole show and what I think about LIV Golf. I mean, could you come up with a dumber name, really? I mean, seriously. If you're going to put out all this money for this league, come up with something better than L-I-V golf. Is it live? Is it 54? What is it? You know what? I don't even care because I'm going to refuse to watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm a stubborn SOB. Hope none of you are stubborn this weekend and hope you enjoy yourselves. And uh, make sure you come back again. Two episodes next week. Wednesday, we'll be previewing the U.S. Open. Next Friday, I'm sure we'll be all Saints talking about minicamp, looking ahead to training camp, getting fired up because it's vacation time. We'll see you then. Enjoy your weekend, boys and girls. Peace and love, my friends. <laughs>